is an Odyssey original. This is KX In Depth. I'm Rob Arch. And I'm Charles Feldman. The two recent mass shootings in California, the one in Monterey Park, the other south of San Francisco, well, they seem so far to center around, so far to center around personal and workplace disputes. Now, those apparent motives seem to be in line with a new report from the National Threat Assessment Center that finds half of recent mass attacks involve some kind of personal or workplace dispute. We'll go in depth into warning signs. American and German tanks could soon escalate the war in Ukraine to levels not yet seen. And Pope Francis's recent comments on homosexuality have LGBTQ plus groups hopeful the Catholic Church could be changing. And more and more music artists are selling out, not talking about changing their style. They are taking up offers of millions and millions of dollars to sell the rights to their music. Justin Bieber is the latest. We go in-depth into these business moves. And if the timing is right, college students have always found ways to cheat. Never before, though, have they had it so easy to do to skip doing their work. We'll explain. We start with mass shootings and their motives. Daniel Webster is co-director of the Center for Gun Violence at Johns Hopkins University. Daniel, thanks for being with us. Good to be with you. So this Secret Service uh, study that we alluded to, uh, which shows that that pretty much half of shootings over the period that they studied in this country uh, involved personal disputes, involved uh, workplace disputes, that sort of thing. What takeaway do you get from it? Well, I think it's a really important finding, and it's important to understand that this report focused on mass attacks uh, that are in more public places. If you look at gun violence more broadly within the United States, uh, where sadly this is an all-too-frequent type of uh, occurrence, uh, grievances really drive this, uh, whether you are talking about uh, urban violence, domestic violence, or uh, mass shootings. Uh, it, it is the, probably the most common connecting point here, aside from the obvious, which is easy access to firearms. I'm old enough to remember back when uh, some of these uh, incidents started in postal offices and, and there was a euphemism for it, going postal. Uh, mm-hmm. But then as as you saw more of these happening everywhere, and of course, uh, mass shootings break out in all number of uh, workplaces. So uh, we we were told, watch out for the warning signs. First of all, what are the warning signs? And second of all, how do you differentiate those warning signs from somebody who's just that way, but they're they're not going to blow up and kill anyone? Great question. The honest answer is that it is difficult to um, identify someone who's going to do something so horrific to go on, uh, you know, a rampage to try to kill or injure large numbers of people. But the common things that you see in these cases, um, typically, it's someone in in some sort of personal crisis. They've lost a job. Um, uh, uh, split ways with a uh, romantic partner, um, you know, in any number of things that are going on in their lives. And typically you have some underlying, well, in some cases you have some underlying mental illness. Um, I, I don't want to over, uh, um, estimate that, you know, in, in some studies of mass shootings, uh, I, I think the most I've seen is about a third have some, you know, uh, serious mental illness, but 
many of these people, nevertheless, are not well uh, psychologically. Many are suicidal. I think it's useful to, for us to think about this problem in part not only as an act of violence against others, but very, very often these are people who are suicidal. And so some of our responses really should key into those uh, suicidal type of behaviors. Of course, if 50 percent or, or, yeah, roughly 50 percent of these mass shootings are in workplace settings or because of domestic disputes uh, among people, in other words, who know one another, or at least mm -hmm. some people who know one another, that, of course, leaves 50 percent that are not. So how do uh, people, how does the public deal with that 50 percent? Well, clearly, that's a huge challenge. Uh, we clearly have an increased um, uh, involvement of sort of hate-driven uh, acts of mass violence uh, based upon uh, so sometimes it's political differences, sometimes it's sort of race or cultural religion oriented. Um, so this is, uh, you know, a much broader problem in our, in our society that we should take seriously, uh, you know, and, and in, in the most immediate sense, you want law enforcement to be focused on, uh, you know, investigating uh, people who uh, are showing these signs and, and get warning signs to get reported to the FBI or other um, law enforcement agencies. But you also just generally uh, in, um, uh, social service agencies or, you know, any um, workplace, you want to be able to look for um, signs not, that that someone is, um, you know, planning uh, acts of mm -hmm. violence, sometimes just for the, uh, the notoriety. Th right. That is a, clearly a trend. We see a lot of copycat uh, phenomenon going on. All right. Thank you so much. That's uh, Daniel Webster, co-director of the Center for Gun Violence at Johns Hopkins University. Right now, though, both Germany and the U.S. say they'll send battle tanks to Ukraine. President Biden saying today the U.S. is sending 31 M1 Abrams tanks in what's a major escalation of this war that's nearly a year old. With us is Mark Kansian, who is a retired Marine Corps colonel and senior advisor with the Center for Strategic International Studies International Security Program. Mark, thanks for being with us. The White House had been saying for quite some time, as you know, that these are very sophisticated tanks, uh, the uh, M1 Abrams, that uh, it would take too long for the Ukrainians to learn how to use it. Now, all of a sudden, there's an about phase. Now we're sending them. But here's what I understand. My understanding is that it's kind of a... It's kind of a backdoor way to allow the Germans who were hesitant to send their sophisticated tanks to Ukraine to give them cover to do that because our tanks are going to take quite some time. Uh, the Germans were looking for political cover. You know, there's uh, a lot of reluctance in Germany to send lethal aid. You know, this is a uh, holdover from the 20th century. So the United States has agreed to send some of its own tanks, these M1s. But it looks like these are going to be new production tanks, so that it's going to take at least a year for them to get there. This is not going to be something in the near term. The Leopards, however, could be there uh, faster. And as I understand it, uh, Germany is sending two tanks. Am I right about that? Uh, the Germans have talked about sending 
uh, a tank company, I think about 15 tanks. Okay. Uh, the polls have talked about numbers like that. Think about leopards, and one of the reasons that they are a, a great tank to send to Ukraine is that there are a lot of them out there. The, the Germans built about 3,600. Many countries have them and might be willing to uh, send them over to Ukraine. So forgive me for being cynical, but I'm cynical. I, if it's going to take about a year, you say, and that sounds uh, in line with what I've read thus far, if it's going to take about a year for the U.S. to get our tanks over to Ukraine, is the thinking, you think, in the, in the White House and perhaps the Pentagon that, you know what, maybe in a year this thing is going to be all over anyway, and then we don't have to send the tanks? So this way the Germans send their tanks, the, Pol- the Polish send theirs, and we at the end of the day never send a single tank. Well, that's certainly possible. Uh, the, it's going to take a little while, uh, and I think you know, the Pentagon would really rather not send the M1s. They're very difficult to maintain. You know, The engine is a gas turbine engine. It's essentially uh, a jet engine. It's uh, difficult to maintain for the U.S. Army. The Ukrainians have never maintained uh, an engine like that. So the Pentagon would really rather not do this. You know, maybe something will happen in the next uh, six months. Maybe they'll get enough leopards that the M1s are not necessary. And it's part of the reluctance on the part of uh, Germany, uh, not just the the idea of, you know, the 20th century history, but also because of the fact there is that concern of uh, escalating things with Russia. And Russia is is close to Germany, closer to Germany than they are the United States. Yes, uh, the Russians always complain when when there's uh, some new piece of equipment that's sent over. They complained about the Patriots. They complained about uh, HIMARS. they're complaining about the, the tanks, of course. I don't think they're going to do anything different. The Russians have put down two red lines. Uh, one is no NATO troops in Ukraine. The other one is no invasion of uh, Russian homeland. Uh, NATO has respected those two red lines. Tanks don't contravene those red lines. So the Russians are going to complain, but in the end, uh, they're just going to have to uh, deal with the tanks. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today. That is uh, Mark uh, Cantian, retired Marine Corps colonel, senior advisor with the Center for Strategic International Studies. Still ahead, Justin Bieber cashes in on his music. We will look into why so many musicians are selling out. And imagine being in college again, having someone write your essays for free. It's happening, but it's not a someone it's a something. Mm-hmm. Right now, though, Pope Francis has called laws criminalizing homosexuality as fundamentally unfair. He told the Associated Press, and I'm quoting, we are all children of God and God loves us as we are, unquote. Uh, Pope, uh, though, did still say that homosexual activity is a sin, but his comments have offered some hope in the LGBTQ plus community that the church might be opening up its views. With us is Marianne Duddy-Burke, Executive Director of Dignity USA and co-chair of the Global Network of Rainbow Catholics, and also Michael McDonald, Communications Director of the Catholic League. Thank you both for joining us today. Uh, first question will go to uh, Marianne Duddy-Burke. Thank you uh, for being here. Uh, obviously, uh, these statements for the Pope are something that uh, that that you've been waiting for. What would you like to see the Pope's next step be? Well, first, thank you for having us and uh, for covering this important topic. Uh, it's really clear that the Catholic Church has, is struggling with how to recognize the full dignity and humanity of LGBTQ plus people. And 
uh, acknowledging our equality under the law and that law has to respect our right to life and safety is really important. We'd obviously like to see any kind of judgmental label such as sinfulness um, or exclusion from marriage and the church's sacraments removed so we get to the point of full equality. But today's uh, comments were very, very welcomed uh, around the world. Michael McDonald, to what degree, if at all, uh, would these comments by the Pope be at odds with many of the Church's bishops? Yeah, uh, you know, this is actually not very much a radical departure from uh, Catholic teaching at all. As a matter of fact, this is pretty standard from pretty much the the last several Popes. Uh, The emphasis, again, has always been on uh, love the sinner, reject the sin, uh, there, there's no sense of judgment in the, the Catholic Church uh, as far as the individual person goes. It's what, act, and that's for any person, uh, straight, gay, whatever. Your actions, though, that the Church does hold those uh, in account and says that uh, those do have moral consequences, but the individual person itself uh, has never been the issue. The, the problem has always been what actions you do. Just as, again, it's not uh, in the eyes of the church, it's still a sin for straight people to have sex outside of marriage. Uh, that's that's always been the church's position, that sex should only be uh, reserved for marriage. And anyone who falls afoul of that is the problem. It's, you know, I, by and large, if you look at where LGBTQ people are being persecuted the world over, it's, very little of it is actually coming from Catholics. It, most of it is predominantly from fundamentalists. Uh, particularly like ISIS types in the Middle East, but uh, the Catholics have always had and will always have this position that, uh, you know, we love the sinner, but reject the sin. Yeah, I really have to push back on what Michael has said, because there have been bishops on every single continent that have advocated for laws that persecute people, prosecute people, and make just simply being gay or being transgendered a crime uh, that can be punished with imprisonment uh, in over 60 countries and actually with death in 13 countries. So I think there's a distinction right, about a difference Muslim in countries. what he's saying. They are not all Muslim countries. They are countries across Asia, in Latin America, in the Caribbean, uh, in Africa, they are really, this is really, in, in in Eastern Europe, this is really a global issue. And the number of bishops who have, that have supported discriminatory homophobic laws is uh, well into the dozens. In the Western world, though, this is very much an anomaly. It does not happen. And yes, there, there are examples, again, particularly uh, countries in the Middle East and Africa that tend to have large Muslim majorities you do have this problem. Uh, I'm drawing a blank of which countries in Latin America. There are a few, a handful of Protestant countries in uh, the Caribbean region that still do have a problem with homosexuality. But again, that's not coming from the Catholic Church. Uh, again, we, we've always had, as Catholics, we've always had the notion that uh, as an individual, God loves you. Uh, what you do, though, God and the church will get upset about. But as an individual, you've always been respected uh, in the eyes of the church, and that is uh, true of everybody, straight, uh, homosexual, uh, and, and everything else okay, Mary, uh, Ma- you Ma- can think of. Ma- Marianne, let me, let me just uh, quickly ask you, uh, how much farther do you think this pope should go, and how much farther do you think he can go? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think the pope 
needs to catch up with where many, many Catholics, and certainly the majority of Western Catholics and Catholics in Latin America and Asia already are, which is wanting LGBTQ people to be full and equal members of the church, to have our entire lives uh, respected, to be able to access all of the church's sacraments, including ordination, including baptism for our children, and yes, including marriage. I think it is going to take some time for uh, the official church, the church hierarchy, to get to that point. But I think this is what the people of the church are yearning for and working for in many cases. And uh, Michael, very quickly, because we are uh, running out of time here, I wanted to ask you if the Pope does go further and says that uh, that uh, homosexuality in a committed relationship is not a sin, uh, where would you come down and, and would you offer any pushback, bearing in mind that the Catholic Church, I believe, still teaches that the Pope is God's spokesperson on earth? Uh, the Pope is God's spokesperson on earth if he's speaking from the position within the magisterium. Uh, but if he was to put out a tweet or something like that, uh, it obviously has uh, no legal bearing within the church. Uh, so just keep that in mind. Uh, but it's highly unlikely that the, the Pope would, uh, Pope Francis uh, would even go that far. As we're seeing the problems in uh, the German church right now, they're, they're practically in schism. They're following Martin Luther out. Uh, and, he, and one of the things they've been heavily pushing for is, uh, you know, blessing of same-sex unions, things to that effect. And he's uh, been highly critical of that. Uh, he's even stronger on the transgender issue. He uh, says uh, transgender is demonic. Mm. So uh, it's highly unlikely that this pope uh, is going to uh, completely uh, rebuke 2,000 years of uh, Catholic uh, moral theology, uh, moral teachings. Uh, so I, I don't see that happening at any point here. All right. Well, I want to thank uh, both of our guests, uh, Marianne Duddy-Burke, Executive Director of Dignity USA, Co-Chair of the Global Network of Rainbow Catholics, Michael McDonald, uh, Communications Director of the Catholic League. This is KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Justin Bieber is now more than $200 million richer thanks to selling his entire music catalog. He's the latest musical artist to sell his catalog. Yeah, Bruce Springsteen did the same thing recently. Even younger artists like Justin Timberlake uh, sold his catalog in recent years. So are the offers just too good to pass up? Alan Cross is a music journalist and radio host based in Toronto. Alan Thanks for being with us. But you're actually here in L.A., and it's connected to, to the Justin Bieber thing, isn't it? Uh, it sort of is. I'm, I'm uh, working on a documentary, and I'm, <laughs> I'm on the 405 right now on my way to Merck's house. Uh, so as part of this, I think because the streaming uh, thing has really taken over the music industry, most people uh, consume their music via streaming. But artists really get precious little from streaming. Give us an idea of how much an artist makes from streaming as it was back in the day when they actually sold a lot of physical music? Well, streaming has basically destroyed the sales model where you had people buying pieces of plastic with good margins. Now that's gone. So unless you're an artist like Bieber or The Weeknd or Drake or any number of uh, a very thin number of superstars at the top of the chart, you're not making a lot of money from, from streaming. Uh, Bieber has done extraordinarily well, but I think he... You know, having gone through, a, 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 let's call it a difficult decade, I, he it looks like he wants to step back and uh, just enjoy the fruits of his labor up until now, which is why he accepted this offer of $200 million for his, his catalog. 
that's a lot of money. I think it's the biggest thing that um, uh, that Hypnosis Song Fund has ever invested in so far. And it's certainly one of the biggest deals that we've seen so far. Yeah, you know, you're talking about the uh, problems that uh, Justin Bieber has had in the past 10 years. And, and the most current one is he has been ill and, and not really being able to perform. Do you think that this move to sell his catalog is based on on perhaps his recognition that in the future his uh, you know uh, monetary intake for performances and recordings might be minimal well it could be he uh, also his wife uh, had uh, some health problems as well so maybe he's in the in the position that he's reevaluating what he wants to do with the rest of his life and at 28 if somebody comes to you with 200 million dollars maybe you have things uh, in mind beyond what you're already doing. One thing that we really need to focus on here is why somebody would do this in the first place. And a big part of it is the tax implication. If you are an artist, you're getting royalty checks every three months, six months, whatever it is. Those royalty checks are taxed at a, as if that was a salary. So it could be, you know, 35, 40, 40%, whatever your tax bracket is. If you take money up front from somebody like the Gnosis Song Fund, that becomes a capital gains as opposed to a taxable salary. And the tax rate on that is around 20%. So if you're dealing with something that has been valued at $200 million, the difference between 20% tax and 50% tax is massive. So why not take all this money that you have, you're going to earn anyway, have it all up front and enjoy. You see somebody so young doing this, not terribly, you know, rare. I mean, Imagine Dragons have done it. You mentioned Justin Timberlake. Uh, Beyonce has sold uh, a couple of things. There's a, any number of songwriters that have sold it, uh, you know, and they're below 35. So this is a, this is a, could be, if you have the right financial advice, this could be a really shrewd financial move uh, that will set you up for the rest of your life to do things like, you know, philanthropy, um, activism, uh, you know, any number of things. Yeah, you mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, it might be a sign that you may want to step back a little bit. Uh, but when other artists do that, could we take that as like a signal? Because we see older artists sell their back catalog. I think it's clear that, that they know they're not going to be quite so focused going forward on making more music because they've already made a lot of it. So they want to they kind of cash it out, as it were, and then spend the rest of their lives maybe focusing on doing things they want when they want to do them. Should we take that as a sign when we see somebody sell a catalog that this is a signal they want to slow down their career a little bit? It's It's very possible. Now, we don't know the entire uh, scope of this deal. Does it include just everything up until now that he has recorded and put out? Or, like with Imagine Dragons, did, did he get money for everything he's recorded up until now and will retain any, uh, any profits of anything he records going forward? We don't know. These deals tend to be very, very opaque um, and very private. We think the deal is worth $200 million. That's mm. what's being reported, but we have no confirmation of that. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Alan Cross, music journalist, radio host based in Toronto. Artificial intelligence is getting so advanced it can now take tests. Chat GBT or chat G. It's hard to say. Chat GPT recently passed a law school exam at the University of Minnesota. 
It only got a C plus, so it still has a way to go. <laughs> like so many of us. Uh, some college students figured out that chat GPT can be used to help them write essays and take tests online or remotely. Uh, professors have caught on. They are looking to stop it. One professor was quoted saying he plans on going medieval on the students. One hopes that's a history professor. Uh, that professor is with us now. To oh, He's not a history professor. Well, I missed that one. Christopher Bartell, philosophy professor at Appalachian State University in uh, North Carolina. Thank you so much for joining us. It would have been nice if you were a history professor uh, making a history reference or going medieval that would have been, on students. Yeah, that would have been a nice bit of symmetry. Yeah, there yeah. you go. So how how is it that you catch on? How do you know when it's an AI that's writing the essay or taking the test? Well, this is the problem is that we don't know. Um, I can't really be sure. What happened to me last semester is I had a few students who wrote a couple of essays that seemed suspicious to me. So I ran them through the usual plagiarism detectors that we had, and they came back clean. Okay, we're having uh, some difficulty there with uh, with Mr. Bartell, so uh, you know, we'll get our producer. Yeah, maybe we can re- reestablish it. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah. so, so uh, this uh, chat GPT, mm-hmm. again, hard to yeah. pronounce. Uh, so it is really the latest rage. Uh, there are all kinds of people who are who are going to it and trying to see what it can do. And it is pretty sophisticated. You know, it can write things. Mm-hmm. It can write poetry. It can write uh, uh, legal briefs, mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah. Uh, so, song, some songwriters are uh, using it as well. Yeah, and Microsoft, uh, I believe, recently... Uh, you know, they, they've been spending a lot of money uh, pumping it into the company that actually pioneered and developed ChatGPT. Mm-hmm. And I think um, the hope is, uh, on the part of the people that, that have created this, is that it'll be a far more sophisticated version of, say, Siri or Alexa right. uh, that is currently available. Okay, we have him. Uh, we have Mr. Bartell back with us. Uh, thank you for joining us. So you were, you were in the process of explaining uh, how you know that it's an AI that's taking the test or writing the essay. Yes. So strictly speaking, we don't know. And what happened to me is I had some students write an essay that seemed suspicious. They seemed odd. So I ran the essay through the usual plagiarism detectors that we use, and they came back clean. So there was nothing I can do. I can't launch a, a you know quasi legal. Um, academic integrity charge against students because it seems odd. And then after the semester, I started playing around with ChatGPT. I put in prompts that I use from my class, and wouldn't you know, their essays sound eerily close to what ChatGPT produced. So I still don't actually have proof that they cheated, but it just looks like this is the future that we're going to have to deal with. So basically, as, as, a, as a teacher, you have to kind of, I mean, you know your students, right? So if you know that, yeah. like, I, you know, that student's a real dummy. So if you have a real dummy. <laughs> like if it was one of us, you yeah, know. No, yeah. If you had a, a student yeah. who's, who's a real dummy and they turn in a paper and you read it and you go, wow, this looks like it came from some genius. You don't really yeah. need to, to have confirmation from from you know you know doing a search do you to know that that dummy probably didn't write that paper i mean funnily enough the the kind of case that you're talking about where you know it, it it's not as common as you'd think i get students that you know sometimes they have a bad day sometimes they have a really good day but um like in one particular class of mine i have 65 students and i can't i don't know which one's the dummy there's too many of them Probably, um, probably so, two thirds. Mm-hmm. Let's say two thirds. <laughs> yeah. Well, then what happens is, I occasionally they have a good day, and they, you know, they do it well, and I can't, I can't 
on the basis of that, say they had to have cheated. What I used to be able to do is I used to be able to search the Internet and find the text and put it in the student's face and say, look, there it is. I can tell that you lifted this off the Internet. And then they would confess. But as long as they don't confess, as long as they dig the little heels in and refuse to say I use ChatGPT, there's nothing. But but if I, you I yeah throw I, yeah but if you know that for example if you know that one student only speaks in one syllable words and they turn in a paper <laughs> that all of a sudden the words go to two three and four syllables something's changed. Yes. Yeah. I mean, maybe they got a tutor. Maybe uh, yeah. what the students would do. This is what the students would do to me: is they would say, "Hey, I studied. You're a great teacher. I learned." So what's, the, so what's the solution? Do uh, you have to have everybody now going forward do everything in a classroom? So I'll tell you what I am doing, and then I'll tell you what I want to do. Um, what I am doing is um, all of my classes now, they're doing everything in pen, in paper, right in front of me in the classroom. Um, which is fine. When I broke it to the students, they were fine with it. They were perfectly happy with that, that arrangement. What I want to do is I want to go medieval. I want to go all the way back to oral exams, which they would Ooh, do. wow. And I don't, yeah, it would be really tough in a class of 65. I don't think I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> but in my class of like 10 to 15 students, absolutely. Oral exams might be a good experience for them. They need to be able to um, improvise and explain something just on the fly. Right. Uh, you're a philosophy professor, so I want to ask you a philosophical yeah. question. Uh, oh, you know, no, we okay. we're, we're talking about J uh, chat GPT. Uh, the AI is only going to get smarter. It's not going to get dumber. Mm -hmm. It's going to get smarter. And eventually, right. and maybe already now, it's becoming nearly impossible to tell the difference between a human being that you're conversing with and an AI. When that happens, mm -hmm. what will that mean to our human sense? And explain this, if you will, in 30 seconds. Our human sense of being and identity. Go. What will it do to our sense of being and identity? I think... Very often we get our sense of, I mean, it might be that we outsource it, which would be really weird. It might be that we outsource our sense of being an identity that um, what I am is partly extended into the world and it's partly made up of the programs that I use. I think that'd be a strange world to live in, but that might be what we're looking at. You know, I, I've exported part of my identity to my phone and the other part to my refrigerator. Yeah. Everybody <laughs> has. I don't remember phone numbers ever, anymore. Neither do I. I don't no. know anybody. They're all in my phone. Without this thing in my hand, I'm a wreck. But you know what's also scary is you, you go to doctors nowadays and you ask them something and they take out their phone and they look it up. Mm. And it's like, okay. That's it's, terrifying. I, I know, because you think they should know this stuff. Right. But they don't. They yeah. look it up. Maybe they use I mean, chat GPT in, in medical school. When I go in for surgery, I hope they took their exams. And I hope <laughs> my surgeon didn't chat GPT it. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Christopher Bartell, philosophy professor at Appalachian State uh, University in North Carolina. Talk about using AI and chat GPT to get your jobs done, something that we will not be allowed to do here. And if we did, you'd probably know it right off the bat. Uh, that's today's edition of KNX in Death.